This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I feel remiss because I let you say database the whole show. That's not how you say that word. How do you say that word? It's database. It can be either way. Tomato, tomato. Nobody says tomato either. (laughs) My brother said tomato. Okay, well, now we know, you know, it's a a familial thing then, I guess. (laughs) He also said, well, I don't say tomato. I say tomato. He also said aunt. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about aunt and aunt. It feels weird to call somebody your aunt because like... (laughs) <laughs> Do you have a pet aunt? I don't understand. But it feels really snobby to say your pet aunt. Your pet aunt. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that does feel snobby. <laughs> I think that's the beginning of the show. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. What have you been working on lately? Rails. We kind of wrapped up all of the remaining blockers for RC1 of Rails 5. I think there might be one or two left that the people who they're assigned to are unresponsive, so I might just go clean those up. So hopefully by the time this airs, RC1 will have shipped. Um, There were a couple of issues that just ended up taking longer to figure out than I would have liked, so uh, we ended up pushing back. But now it's finally time. Um, and so if all goes well, we'll probably ship the final release on the 15th. The final RC release on the 15th? No, Rails 5. Ooh. The 15th of March? The yes. Ides, the Ides of March? Yes. Beware the Ides of March. Because we do two-week RCs. Okay. Have people been using the beta? Have the beta as like... I mean, how can you tell? I guess you can tell by number of downloads on RubyGems, maybe, loosely? Yeah, but that, I mean, that's always such a terrible metric. Mm-hmm. Even, even for release gems. I think that number of downloads is a terrible metric for popularity because it's not even necessarily how many users you have. It's how much your users use CI. <laughs> how many developers you have on. of each. Yeah. Like what, what's your bundling pattern? What are your bundle? What's your bundle hygiene like? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, number of issues is the, is the best uh, metric, I think. Mm-hmm. If you, if you accept that there is no software without bugs. That makes sense. Like, it's also possible that there's some incredibly popular thing that's used by everybody that is perfectly documented. Nobody's ever confused by it. It has no bugs. And that project would have a false negative on issue count. But so, yeah, anyway, to answer your actual question, yes, uh, people have been using the beta. We, end, we ended up with a little under um, 100 issues that were on the Rails 5 milestone. Those weren't all necessarily from the beta. Those were all, there were also a smattering of things that have just been there throughout the cycle that, that we wanted to finish before the before we ship the release. I guess we can actually go look at the number of closed things on the milestone, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> 388 issues closed on the milestone. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. And those issues don't get assigned to the milestone until after like beta one or something like that? Is that what happens? No, or? no, that's what I mean, is that, is that a lot of those may have been around from before the beta was released. Like these aren't necessarily all things that came out of the, the beta. Like, if you go to the last page, there's an issue on it that was opened in 2011. Oh, <laughs> and filed onto uh, Rails 5 in 2011. Yeah. It was like, yeah, we'll get to this in, like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Rails 5. Sure, throw it on there. 
Yeah, I mean, this this is the first time I've actually... I mean, I've downloaded the betas before and tried to like, I don't know, let me see how this app does on the betas. And it's always a bigger pain in the butt, which maybe we can circle back around to, to use the beta than I want it to be. But this time, I wanted to get ahead of having clearance support Rails 5. So I've been doing it via that and was able to file, I don't know, two releases? There are two issues, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like two issues against it. Like one I found was like that some changes were made to when valid gets kicked off or when... You're talking about the change where validation, uh, where a few of the validations only were applied when the record was changed? Right. So like I had an issue opened where like on clearance, password is a virtual field. Um, or a virtual attribute or you know, whatever, transient attribute, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't get persisted to the database because we persist this encrypted password instead. But we need to validate the password field to make sure it's actually present. And yep. so if you didn't change anything else in the model that was connected to the database, it wouldn't know that it needed to run validations. It would just say, you didn't change anything. So there's nothing here to validate. So, you know, yeah, it's valid. But then when you went to go save, it would fail because it wasn't valid. So it was really kind of a confusing thing. And, you know, once we figured out what the issue was, Eileen jumped on it and worked and worked it out. But I looked at where it was and I was like, nope, I'm not going to be of any help here. <laughs> yeah. No, and it was interesting because, right, I put, her, I put her on that issue just because she was the author of the commit that introduced that bug in the first place. And we didn't intentionally, like there was no intention, even though it would make sense just to not run validations on fields that aren't changed. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the purpose of this change. It was a side effect of trying to fix another bug, and this wasn't applied to all validations. It was specifically like the presence validation and one other. Okay. Yeah, so I was excited to see that one get worked out. I've had a couple other things where I ended up having to like point clearance at Rails Master while <laughs> these bugs were getting fixed or something like that, but it wasn't, wasn't too bad. The one that is not going to be fixable is... There's a change in Rails 5 when you're doing integration tests or controller tests, which I guess are now the same thing, mostly. Um, They're still separate, but um, we're trying to implement controller tests in terms of integration tests under the hood. Is that going to happen? Is that Because you, you say trying to. I'm not sure if that was finished or not in time for Rails 5. Okay. Anyway, one of the changes that was made was the methods that you would use, like get, post, delete, um, things like that to simulate HTTP requests in your controller packs or to actually make HTTP requests in your integration tests were changed to no longer take positional arguments but instead take keyword arguments, which is a pretty good change because passing like two hashes that were totally unnamed for your like if you wanted to pass session variables and parameters or something like that was pretty clumsy. Like you'd look at it and be like, I don't, you just have to know what those hashes are, right? Um, unfortunately, if you are in a situation like I am where you have to support multiple versions of Rails or if you're, you know, you just happen to have some controller tests that uh, flex this behavior some, <laughs> um, if you ha- if one of the keys you're passing happens to be one of the, like, as a parameter, happens to be one of the keyword, ar- has to share a name with the keyword argument, then it's you're going to get odd, really odd behavior. <laughs> Things aren't going right. to work. Um, and you're not going to get, you're not even going to get a chance to see the deprecation that tells you that, you know, this behavior has changed because it'll just, like in my case, I was using the keyword session. A clearance form is passing parameters about a session in one, in like the login form. Mm-hmm. And that was getting read as the session keyword argument, which is obviously not a parameter. So the params were coming through to the controller as blank, which was kind of maddening for a little while until I figured out what was going on. <laughs> So I was like, I'm not even getting that deprecation here. So like, it's not that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, I'm not getting that deprecation. I should be getting that deprecation. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and that's and that's one of those for. I mean, you of course already knew about that change. But that's also uh, for people who wouldn't necessarily have already known about that before uh, going into it. That's one of the reasons we deprecate things, but you should also still check the change log and and not just rely on deprecation warnings to actually catch every change because. There are situations like that where maybe the deprecation warning is flawed in some way or there's some case that we couldn't that we couldn't catch or that it wasn't performant to catch. Those are always the worst when there's something where you want to change some behavior and you know that it wouldn't be a huge impact change, but issuing a deprecation warning would be a massive performance hit in like in some hot path and right. and there's no other way to deprecate it. Right. There've yeah. been a couple of cases that that's just happened in the last release. Yeah. So once once I got once I got that figured out, unfortunately, because it's a li- I'm working on a library that needs to support older versions of Rails, and it's unfortunate, particularly in this case, because even four two doesn't support the keyword arguments here, or even like pass- passing a hash as a hash of options. It's unfortunate that I kind of had to work around that in clearance. And the way I worked around it in clearance was basically to go back to positional argument, like have it have clearance have a shim inside of it that maps the keyword arguments back to positional argument, or I can't remember exactly which way. It must do the other way. So in my tests, I use positional arguments, and then I map them to keyword arguments myself rather than letting Rails do it. Hmm. Um, because I know I'm never passing those you know keys in from my tests. Right. So um, it works out okay for me. It's unfortunate that even after Rails 5 ships and I bump support to for clearance to 4.2+, plus, I'm still going to have to have this workaround. Um, one of the things I proposed was like having a gem that would be supported for four two through five one, basically through five one, that would let you use the old form. But I I understand why that doesn't want to why nobody wants to do that because nobody wants to support such a thing, and it's kind of a corner case, right? So, oh well. <laughs> I have thought I have thought about uh, doing like a a Rails future gem that basically just backports uh, deprecations or ch- or breaking changes uh, to earlier versions. That would be interesting. That'd be really interesting. I'm thinking about this. This is probably a bad idea for libraries, but wouldn't it be interesting if you could say, this library supports Rails 5, and then say, if you want to use it with 4.2, use Rails Future. Right. Right. And have like kind of an optional dependency. Basically, you need, it's a required dependency if you're on 4.2. I don't think, there's no way that Bundler or Ruby Gems can map this, but like plenty of gems have this thing where like if you want to use my gem, you also have to depend on one of these other gems or something like that. Yeah, no, I really wish Ruby Gems had some notion of optional dependencies. Like hmm. not, not even necessarily for that kind of complexity, but even just saying like Rails optionally depends on the PG gem. And if you are using Rails with PG, here's the version requirement. We can't even express that. True. I mean, I guess you could do that at runtime. We do do it at runtime. Okay, so you say, like, if PG is loaded, basically, then check its version and... Nope, we call gem PG at the top of the PostgreSQL adapter. <laughs> okay, and then it check its version and say, if it's a version we don't support, then error. Well, no, gem, gem takes the, ah. the version as an argument. So if Rails loads the PG adapter, it will blow up. It would blow up, or it would it would refuse to load the PG adapter at all. Uh, Ruby gems, would, yeah, Ruby gems would blow up when we called gem if there was another call to if something else had also tried to declare a dependency on PG with a version that didn't match up. Interesting. It'd be a version mismatch error or something like that. Okay. Yeah, and so far, like, so once that was out of the way, those were the two biggest changes I think I had to deal with. Everything else was fine like it was i had to eliminate some deprecations like i had tests that use render text which is no longer a thing in rails 5 so that was kind of a hassle because i need like the the replacement for it is not again one of those things the replacement for it is not in rails 4.2 or in right. rails 3.0 or whatever all the versions i support so i kind of have to shim that but 
We just renamed it to Plane, right? I think so. Let me look at the commit here. Because I vaguely remember it. There was some there was some confusion between when it would fall back to a default and whether or not it was rendering plain text. And render text was usually doing the wrong thing. So we renamed it to render plain, which right. always sets the mime type to, to text plain, whereas render text would not necessarily do that. But I don't remember exactly what it did before. I think I'm looking at the, ch- the change I did in clearance, and I think clearance was kind of taking advantage of the fact that it wasn't rendering plain text. <laughs> It was rendering HTML because I replaced the calls of render text with render HTML. Render HTML is in 4.2, isn't it? E- I don't think so. I don't know. I have if Rails version major greater than or equal to 5, render HTML, else render text. Okay. Maybe we'll have to look at that. I don't know. Maybe I did that unnecessarily because I was trying to bang out a bunch of deprecation warnings. <laughs> Other things were like in generators, like used to be able to call, well, I guess in anywhere, but in the clearance generators, I call table exists to check if a certain table exists, but that's kind of a misnomer because we also need to check like views and anything else that Rails knows about that might be have a conflicting name. So they want you to use data source exists, which is just a better name. I think the behavior is the same yep. uh, as of Rails 5, but you should use data source exists. Uh, the biggest one that I hated doing was before action. And you, t- you last episode, you were like kind of unsure if before filter was going to stick around. Do you um, have any idea? I'm I'm fairly let me let me just double check right now because I can look at the code. I'm just trying to figure out where the hell the aliases are even are even uh, defined because it is using <laughs> the, I, yeah, uh, it is using some crazy method. meta programming. Yep, because like it's it's probably saying like it probably has two arrays of like before. Yep. And and then the also the the suffix and possibly skip before and skip exactly. after. <laughs> so now I'm trying underscore filter and seeing if that works. Yeah, I did the same dance the other day and I couldn't find it. So I was like, uh, I don't feel like changing, testing it right now to see if it's there. Uh, no, the deprecation is still there saying it will be removed in 5.1. Okay, well then, so my code sticks around where I have like if responds to before action, then go ahead and call before action. Otherwise call before filter. I thought about like shimming my own like clearance before action. <laughs> I was like, "That's a terrible idea. I'm not gonna do that." Yeah. <laughs> so I just have the conditional. That was the other thing um, I was gonna say earlier. That's one of the reasons I was shying away from a Rails future gem is because I I have this feeling that even though I I would like to have more faith in humanity, gems are probably just gonna depend on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be terrible because it will include breaking changes to Rails. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked what we did on T1D when we were going through the Rails 3 to 4, Rails 3.2 to 4.0 upgrade, where we knew, we we kind of identified the features we knew we were going to want to use from Rails 4, and we wrote them ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> like, we knew we wanted to use FindBy, so we just wrote FindBy and included that as a module everywhere, or on active record, and then we could use FindBy wherever we wanted. When we upgraded to Rails 4, we could pull out that module. We did the same thing for like active model model and a couple other things, I remember. But Well, and some of them, right, like strong parameters was fine just because that started its life as a gem. Right. That was super useful because if that just got sprung on you at Rails 4 and you had no time to prepare, like it, it was going to delay the upgrade to Rails 4. And it did. There were several, there's several clients we've worked with that are just on three something because they don't want to tackle the upgrade. Well, you don't uh, have to tackle parameters. strong parameters right. until five, because that's like Shopify. That's our main blocker right now for go, for our Rails five upgrade is uh, getting rid of all of the remaining calls to add or accessible. You do have to add. You would just have to add if you wanted to run Rails four with with add or accessible. You would just have to add the the gem, right? Right, and if you wanted to move your code slowly, there's a migration. Uh, so there's a you can set 
the the sanitizer on Active Record, and if you set it to migration, then that will be this middle ground where it uses both uh, protected attributes and strong parameters. And basically, just if you pass in something that has gone through strong parameters, it won't you it won't apply uh, protected attributes. But if you hmm. just pass a parameter a params hash that hasn't been permitted, then it'll go through uh, the adder accessible stuff, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever it's yeah. called. Right. Yeah, and I think we use that. Trevor did some work on a client project that I was on, where he he was the one who unfortunately had to go through all of the controllers and models and handle all this. And it's a hard. It's it's not a fun change to do, which is I why I think like even though people know or people may know that they can just add protected attributes and get the behavior they had in Rails three in Rails four, it's also an acknowledgement that like someday they're going to need to change this. Right. Unless somebody else wants to take over protected attributes and keep it up to date. Nope. <laughs> as much as strong, par- like, what are your feelings on strong parameters? Uh, it does not go far enough, but it is objectively better than protected attributes. It is better than obje- than than protected attributes, but it's one of those things that I have a diffi- I have difficulty remembering how to use in any case that's not simple. Where such as you want to permit a child, right? So you have an array of children. How do you do that? What's the syntax, right? And like the, the the mnemonic I was basically given was like to permit an array, use a hash. To permit it a hat, to permit a hash, use an array, and that sort of works out. Like you want to give it, a, you want to give it a an array of keys if you're permitting a hash. You want to give it. It's kind of kind of crazy. Well, no, I mean, you, when you want to allow an array of something, then you have the key be the name of the field that you want, and the value be an array. And then if it's and presumably if, and if it's an array of hashes, then you have all of the key names inside of that array. Mm-hmm. It's so what's interesting is it's actually really similar to the API for includes. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I don't have a problem with includes. Like I when you start to nest them, it's just hard it becomes hard to see. Right. But beyond like writing it, I don't generally have a problem. But for whatever reason, strong parameters with like accepts nested attributes for always gives always makes it takes like three or four tries for me to be like oh okay there it is i got it what 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 if you didn't use accept nested attributes for sure that would be fantastic but there are times as much as we hate on the accept nested attributes for it i hate on it all the time there are times when you're just like oh am i gonna write a form object for this or am i just gonna use accept nested attributes for yeah maybe nobody will notice i'll just use accept nested attributes for does that mean i have to stop complaining about accept nested attributes for probably am i going to <laughs> no <laughs> But what I'd like to see, where I'd like to see it eventually go, is um, something that's a larger API, first of all, and not a single method, which would make cases like the one that you just described much clearer because there would be individual methods that you would call for that. Mm-hmm. And then I'd also like to see typecasting, not all of typecasting, but a significant portion of, t- of typecasting moved into that layer and out of Active Record. Hmm. Right. So Active Record would get parameters that were already of the proper type right. and handle that. That would be interesting for, like, how would you handle using it in a non-controller context at that point? It's meant to be used in a controller context. Like, no, but it, I mean, like, how would you, new, like, if you want to use active record in a non-controller context, I guess you just initialize a parameters object with whatever you wanted and pass that in? Well, if you're using it, if you're not accepting user input, then you presumably have values of the correct type right. already. Sometimes they're difficult to construct, right? It's particularly if you're using something like the attributes API, you could have some stuff in there that, like, this field very much you would expect to be a string, but it has some additional logic tied to it that does something, right? Sure, and that's why I'm saying like move a lot of the type coercion. I mean, we, we can basically never actually get rid of type coercion from Active Record entirely, as much as I would like to do that. But we can do things like you can no longer pass a string to an array field. Mm-hmm. Types, man. <laughs> Strong types. Yeah. 
Well, <laughs> but, but it's also then for JSON APIs, you can handle all of your validations at that level and return to 422 before we even hit user code. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be able to generate JSON schema from that information automatically. That sounds good. Like that's what I think needs to needs to live at the controller level for parameter sanitizing is something that has enough information that it could generate JSON schema if it need, if it wanted to. All right. JSON schema? Yeah. Awesome. That would be perfect. Not JSON API. Well, they're they're different things. Like right, JSON schema just states right. is just documentation right. about what it accepts. Right, and I like JSON schema. JSON API, on the other hand, I guess I should clarify. Uh, I prefer. Uh, it's difficult to say, but I think in most cases you can write a sane API without it being JSON API. You know, the actual branded JSON API. Without having any specific opinion for or against JSON API, like the idea is you should never have to care. Right, except that you do. Like I've worked on a couple of projects now using JSON API, and it's never perfect, so you have to care. It's kind of like the idea of semantic versioning. You should never have to care what version you're using. You just like limit it to this. Like you specify what you're willing to tolerate, but that assumes a world where everybody's perfect and doesn't introduce breaking changes and minor point releases. Right. Right. But just and to play that devil's advocate, exist. that's not necessarily a problem with the spec. That's a problem with the abstractions that you are using or that exist. Sure, it's a problem with humanity. <laughs> sure. Um, and we're all human, so like. Um, yeah, sh sure, put your pessimistic version constraints in place, but still run your test suite after you run bundle update, right? Right. Um, and, you know, still have good tests that will catch those things for you or whatever. Like, I would never go from Rails 5.1.1 to even Rails 5.1.2 without giving the site a once-over, right? Well, sure. Like <laughs> I mean, Rails is also a special case because we will, especially if that's a security release, right. like, we'll just have straight-up breaking changes in security releases. Yeah, and that makes sense. Does it though? I, I mean, mean it makes sense. Bump, it makes sense to, to it makes sense to break to make it you're right. It makes sense to break compatibility for a security fix. Right. You would ideally you'd be bumping to 6.0, 7.0, 8.0 when that happens, but if you're not going to, I I mean, I like semantic versioning, but I also kind of understand where Rails is coming from on this standpoint. Yeah. I think we mentioned before they could just use a different like they could just call it Rails next, or not next, but like come up with some marketing name for the next version of Rails, right? Right. Um, and then let the version number be independent of the marketable name of Rails. Right, and that's what Android does. Really? So they, you know, the version number goes crazy between cupcake and ice cream and hot dog? or No, hot dog. Right. Hot dog's I mean, it, it, it'll either be a major or minor version bump. Okay. Never a patch. Um, although, in reality, that number doesn't even matter. Uh, the only thing that matters is the API number, which is a, it's just an integer. And if there's any API changes of any kind, addition, breaking change, what have you, mm -hmm. they bump that number. Yeah. Um, and so it could even be a patch release. Uh, if it, and if it, was a if it was some sort of security fix or some, if there was some breaking change, no matter how minor, they bump that number. Uh, and then there's the semantic number, which is roughly semantic versioning. And then there's the user-facing version, which is, yeah, Cupcake or Lollipop or I think Marshmallow is the current one. And you've also got, like, the Microsoft approach with Windows, right? Where, like, there was Windows 2000, which was Windows 5 under the covers. And then there was Windows XP, which was, like, the next major marketing version of Windows. 2000 was 4. No, because 2000 was NT, wasn't it? And there wasn't NT, NT4. There wasn't NT4.1. Uh, XP was the... First I think full NT. I thought, I thought X, hang on, hang on. 
It can ah, also... Windows NT 5.0 is Windows 2000. Windows NT 5.1 is Windows XP. Windows <laughs> NT 5.2 uh, just takes me to a table. I have no idea. It's something. Uh, it's uh, and, it's and, also and Windows course... XP. <laughs> Wait, 60... so is, that, is that implying that there were no breaking changes to right. APIs? It's not semantically versioned. Who knows? I have no idea. And then you have like Windows developers did things where they were like, does it start with a 9? Then it's Windows 95 or, 9, or 98. And they're like, actually... We kind of wanted to use Windows 9, but never mind. <laughs> we'll just call it Windows 10. I mean, the actual Microsoft versioning scheme, right, is that we're on Windows 1.80 <laughs> because they just don't make breaking changes <laughs> to anything ever. <laughs> sure. Like, you remember the whole SimCity story? Yeah, right, right. It's SimCity running, yes. And we did find the, the link for that. Uh, I ended up putting it in the show notes retroactively. So if you heard that podcast and couldn't find the link in the show notes, there is a link. It's a Joel on Software link uh, in that episode. You can go find it. Did you read the blog that that guy has that he links to in that article? No. Um, the link is, is broken, but the name of the blog is still around, and you can just find it on, on its new location. It's literally just the same guy telling all kinds of uh, stories about like why funky parts of the uh, Windows API is that way. And, you know, just stories of, uh, of backwards, basically backwards compatibility, fun stories. Right. And I'm sure it's all because, like, this major company called us up. <laughs> or, like, we had a bunch of customers and this major company wouldn't fix their bug. So <laughs> we fixed it for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's basically been it for Rails 5 upgrade pains for me. I was using hide action for some weird reason. Like, when I include modules, I write, like, public methods on a module and then test those public methods, and then I use hide action when so that when it gets included, it doesn't appear as, as a routable action. Right. So that's gone. Hide action is now gone. So right. they just don't use controller action style writing. Well, the alternative, the, the right, and the alternative, but I just don't want, I don't like when you call like controller.action methods and you get back a whole bunch of stuff that was included by modules. So in clearance, I'm very careful to say hide those actions, but I can't do that anymore. So now instead, on include, I mark all of those as private. Uh, so I can still test them, but now they're private. It's kind of a, it's one of those things that's kind of a breaking change, right? If you happen to be call, like taking advantage of the fact that those methods were public, like say in your test, a controller test saying like controller.signedIn query, right? If you were doing that in a test, we give you helpers to do that. So like I viewed that as like you shouldn't have been using it that way. It's not a breaking change. It was a bug that I'm fixing. So we'll see when I release the next version of Rails, if, uh, the next version of Clearance, if uh, anybody has any problems with that. But I don't think, I don't think it'll be a problem. Um, so that's what I opted for there. But other stuff, like, I mean, I see hide action on apps a little bit. That'll have to go away. But I haven't come up with um, anything major just yet. So I think it'll be hopefully relatively smooth. There's going to be some dependency stuff probably, right? Yeah. Well, that's um, always what makes it painful, right? But I mean, like, you know, your app's going to have some new dependencies. And some stuff's going to change too. Like, um, particularly, I, I would assume, because of the work that's been happening with Action Cable to adapterify it, adapterify it, and things like that. Like in action, active job, the default queue changed from inline to async. Right. Or the default handler changed from inline to async. Right. Um, using concurrent Ruby in the background to run that asynchronously. So if your tests, if in your tests you were doing something where you were like calling deliver later, but in an integration test, you were just checking to see like, did this mail get delivered? That test is going to fail because now it's running async. Stuff like that is happening. I wonder if, I think we might still have it be inline by default in tests. That's not my experience. Then I, again, I guess it's also, right, the uh, intended way of testing it is saying it's, it's just testing whether or not a job was enqueued and not whether or not the job did its thing properly. 
Right, but this is an integration test, right? right. <laughs> I want to I'm not. Test I'm it. not saying that that's not. That's how I would want to test it. I'm just saying that's that's presumably the logic. I actually think it's a really good idea to just use something asynchronous in tests and development. If you're going to use something asynchronous in production and staging or whatever, what have you, it just introduces a lot of testing complexity. Like, how do you test? The result, like you can test that something got enqueued, is basically the best you can do. Right. Well, or you await a result. Right, and you can test that job separately as well. Right, um, yeah. executing it without enqueuing it in the job thing, and that's probably the best way to go. But again, for compatibility reasons, what I did in the test was just like say, for these tests, there's a before filter that sets the adapter to inline, and then when we're done, we set it back to whatever it was. Um, so that seems to work just fine. Can't you also just do it in a setup block for the tests themselves? Right. That's what it is. It's an around. It's an around. To clarify, this is for the tests that get generated into people's apps. Right. So, like, what clearance has a generator that says, you know, generate me feature specs for the sign-in feature. So then you can do whatever you need, and you can always come back and run those sign-in tests. Right. And in the like for password reset, we deliver an email. And if you have active job, if you have active job, we use deliver later. Um, so for that. so those tests can't be run concurrently now. Sure, I guess. <laughs> is that something people do? Uh, it's something that I, I, I think, well, Circle CI tries to do it, and I think it's something that I wish that more people probably wish they could do. Sure, yeah. That's one of the major things coming for in Ecto 2.0 in Elixir land is the ability to run concurrent tests that depend on the database. I haven't played with it much, but it seems pretty cool. You're going to be able to do that with, with, with Diesel? Uh, yeah, I mean, they already run concurrently by default. Perfect. I, I don't have, I want to look more closely at what they're doing in, in Ecto because it sounds like it should be slower, but they added in Ecto 2.0 the ability to parallelize the actual query itself, mm-hmm. presumably by uh, taking multiple, I remember asking one detail and I know that they take multiple uh, database connections out of the pool in right. order to do it, but I don't know what they're actually doing. Yeah, because that's also going to work for preloading as well, where you're going to be able to preload concurrently. How would that work? Because you need the first query to finish to know what data you're preloading. Right, but then if you're going to preload three other things, right, you can preload those three things oh, concurrently. Oh, sure. That, yes, right. Oh, that's probably all I'm thinking of. That would make more sense. Anyway. Um. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so I, so far, I think the lesson is definitely try the betas because I'm finding you know little things here and there that I'm making notes of that I can... You know, it'll apply to the workshop that we're going to do <laughs> at RailsConf. It's not why I'm doing these, but it certainly was... Um, I guess really nice to be able to just say like make some notes and look through these commits when it comes time to prepare that workshop which we're doing now and say you know these are things we want to look out for these are the these are the things we're looking for in a target app that we're going to try and upgrade to Rails 5. We wanted right. to have these problems because they're interesting. Um and it'll certainly try trying to get started on it will help you prepare as well in for your apps. Unfortunately like particularly it's kind of hard with Bundler or is it Ruby Gems? Yes. <laughs> to test against all of the betas. Uh, to test against the beta. I guess, I mean, we say the beta, but it's really all of the betas. There's like beta for active record, beta for... Oh, right, right, right. If you're testing a library that depends only on active record and you want to test against Rails Master, can you do that? Yeah. How? Uh, gem active record, GitHub, Rails slash Rails. But that's, that's depending on Rails. No, that will look for the active record ah. gem spec. Okay. Yeah. No, Ruby Gems is smart enough that if there is a folder with the same name as the gem, to do that. Okay. Cool. So I'll try that then. Um, but then you have to hunt down all of the things like uh, RSpecs. At least as of a few weeks ago, RSpecs released versions don't support Rails five. 
So Correct. you've got a point to uh, there. It, no, there is a released version that supports Rails five. Oh, but there's sweet. a beta. I think that it might be a beta release, but that definitely happened at least two or three weeks ago. Okay, so probably right around the time I was trying to add these, because <laughs> then I had to hunt down and I would just be like, uh, okay, use RSpec mocks from master. Okay, use uh, RSpec core from master. Use RSpec this from master, and because RSpec is a meta gem, right? You have to right. like add the master for all of those. And then you're going to run into the odd dependencies, which aren't something like RSpec or Rails, that they're sitting there, you know, maybe they were upgraded for 4.2, but who knows how long it will be till they're upgraded for 5. Right. And there's no, like, if, if you're the person who starts testing that, you can also potentially be the person to help fix any issues, which oftentimes are just going to be deprecations that you can help fix. And then when there's a real issue, you can either raise an issue or fix it in the code. So try the betas, try the betas, try the betas. I wish more people would set it up so that their master branch can also be used with Rails master. And then also I wish everybody who has a gem would just run their CI against Rails master as an allowed failure. Yeah, I mean, I had people raising clearance issues against Rails master before there was a beta, and I just didn't know how to handle that. Because I was like, well, I don't know that this is going to ship like this. Do I want to chase these problems, or do I want to just wait and see how it shakes out? I mean, typically... it's pretty straight. I mean, it's pretty obvious usually whether it's going to ship or not. Like, is it just some bug that cropped up on master or is there a deprecation warning that people are encountering? But how do I tell the difference, right? Not, I'm not if getting a deprecation, deprecation warning. warning, but it's not a deprecation warning, right? The test fails and it tells me like the first one I think I got was that it said this middleware, like I try to insert after a particular middleware and it was no longer there. And I was like, well, I can go and try and figure out why this middleware is no longer there. Or I can wait and see if this problem goes away. <laughs> I mean, well, so that's the thing. And it turns out to like be a that, real problem. I would wait a week or two. Right. And then if you still aren't sure, the easy way to figure out is open an issue. Yeah, I always feel bad doing that. You guys are so busy. Or you all are so busy. I mean, yes, but we're busy in order to help people. <laughs> I guess that's true. Like, It's not like you're opening something frivolously for no reason. There is a legitimate change in behavior that may or may not have been intended. And worst case, we close it and say you were depending on an implementation detail or something like that. But if, if that's what the case, then you know, oh, I do need to actually fix this. Right. In my case, it was something I actually had to fix. Like what happened was the params parser, like there was an action dispatch params parser middleware, I think. And that went away. It just gets, it just gets instantiated in line wherever it's possibly needed. It's no longer a middleware in the stack. Right. Um, and there happened to be no good reason why we were trying, like that I could find that why we were trying to insert after it. Because inserting wherever just seems to work just fine as well. So, I mean, maybe you were relying on params at some point. Maybe at some point back in the day, perhaps. But all the tests pass on all the versions of Rails without it, so not too worried about it. But yeah, like stuff like that. I just like I love the idea of running against master, but in reality, it's going to have to run in my allowed failures group, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm not I'm not advocating putting it in your in your main group definitely put it in allowed failures like there will be times that there are just bugs in master as well right there there's a reason that that we have these stable branches that are separate right so if you support 42 you should definitely run against 42 stable in uh, your non allowed failures well mm, i'd be tempted to do it in allowed failures as well <laughs> I guess. Well, I want to be notified, I guess, if it fails. And the only way to be notified is to put it in your regular test matrix, right? Right. Also, all of this assumes you're running something that can run a test matrix, which not every CI service, <coughs> CircleCI, um, can do. 
I mean, so, hey, if you've got if you've got a uh, open source uh, library and and you're using CI that can't do a matrix, well, if it's open source, yes. But like, what about my app? Right, it's just my app, and I want to run against. No, no, I'm not saying I'm not recommending any of this for apps. Oh, okay. You wouldn't. So you wouldn't recommend that people out there who have an app run against four two stable. If you want to, sure, you can. But no, I think it. I think it's much more important for gem authors to be doing it uh, than app authors. Okay, that also makes sense to me. Yes. Because users have the expectation that when a new version of Rails ships, or they don't have the expectation, but it'd be nice if they could have the expectation that when a new version of Rails ships, like within days, ev- everything in the ecosystem is just ready to go. Right. And that, and that ideally should just be the delay of all of the various gem maintainers shipping the new version because they've just been keeping on top of master over time. Mm-hmm. And that also makes upgrades less painful. Yeah. All right. I'm going to keep, you, you sold me, I'm going to keep master. Well, again... I can only keep master in my allowed failures so long as the dependencies I need for running my tests right. are also keeping up. And so if everybody did this, <laughs> it would work. If the whole world did this all at once, it'll be really cool, guys. But, I mean, hey, worst, worst case, right? Okay, I've got a dependency that needs to get fixed. I'll open an issue on that dependency. Hopefully within a week or two that I'll get resolved and until then I'll just ignore it. And that's why it's an allowed failure. It's like All right. But then you got people like me who are like, I'm not gonna chase Rails five right now. I'll do it in six months. <laughs> sure. And there'll always be people like that. But, yeah. Jerks. <laughs> I mean, this is what we do in uh in Diesel, for example, nightly is in allowed failures, Rust nightly. Mm-hmm. Because we rely on unstable stuff. Uh if you're running if you're running on nightly, um otherwise you have to use a library called syntax to make it work on stable um for our code gen stuff. But we rely on on unstable stuff for our code generation, and every occasionally that'll break um, in nightly. And so it'll and so what I'll do is usually it's about once a month now. Uh, there will be a breaking change, and whenever I go and fix those, I have a separate thing in our in our main matrix that is nightly uh, on a specific date, and that'll just be whatever the last date that I fixed it was. That makes sense. Yeah. So you've sold me. I'll keep uh, master in my allowed failures. I think going forward. I do like a test suite that finishes really fast, but oh well. Travis will report success before the before the allowed failures matrix finishes. Oh, okay, that's cool. I also separately emailed Travis for support the other day because I was like, I know we're a bit of a unique case, but at Thoughtbot we have commercial Travis CI. Like we pay for Travis CI, and then we run our open source stuff on Travis CI because they have the test matrix. I would love to be able to say on Fridays. Use our paid for travisci.com slots for our open source project. So I don't have to sit there and wait for Travis to pass. Uh, because it is the most like I can't I can't just assume it's gonna pass even when I run all of the tests locally, because it is like a, a clean room environment on Travis. Um, which does catch occasionally things that I missed locally, even when I run my full appraisal suite, which appraisal is a thing that lets you run multiple gem files just like Travis kind of does. Even when that passes locally, sometimes Travis fails for good reason. Um, and it's something they said to their credit. They were like, yeah, we're kind of looking into something. Like, even if I just had to click a button that said, like, move this project to TravisCI.com, and then I could move it back manually at the end of the day on Friday when I knew, like, okay, I'm done working, let me move it back. I think that would be really cool to be able to do that. Yeah. If anybody from Travis is listening out there and wants to work on that feature and let us know, that'd be great. <laughs> it's actually interesting. Um, one of the side effects of how Travis's whole slotting is set up is Diesel's test suite could be parallelized more than it is. But the suite will be end up being slower if I actually parallelize it, just because we'll end up spending more time waiting for a new worker to uh, be available. Yeah, I did that in, in clearance for a while. The way I was doing it was 
I ran like each Travis slot was cor- corresponded only to a Ruby version. And then I ran the test for all supported Rails versions on those slots. Um, so I was only using a subset of the slots I'm using now, but it was harder to discover failures. I thought that maybe by going to more slots, I would get a faster test suite. In reality, it seems to be about the same because you'd have to wait for more slots, um, right. especially on the open source one. So I don't think it would be a problem. It probably would be significantly faster on TravisCI.com. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If I if, if Diesel could run on 12 workers, like I could parallelize the damn thing and finish in, in a quarter of the time. Yeah. But And in theory, right, I wouldn't be using any more of their money. Right. Because you'd be, whatever you trade off in systems, or, you know, whatever they call them, you'd be offsetting that in time it takes to run the whole suite. Right. And I'm, I mean, I'm assuming running three boxes for one minute is the same cost as running one box for three minutes. Right. Who knows? I don't know. We don't know their economics. All right. Uh, I think that's good. Should we wrap up? Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 55. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next time. Adios. Ring, ring.